I'm sure you're aware that waiting on God is a dominant theme, particularly in the Old Testament. And uh, wait to wait on the Lord is just another way of saying to trust in the Lord, to depend on the Lord, to cling to the Lord, to lean into the Lord. And uh, while we're doing that, we need to remember the promises of God, right? That's what helps us in the patience department, right? None of us like to wait for much of anything. That's why microwaves are so popular. Everyone has one, right? Because we just want it quick. ATMs, quick. Everything's quick, right? We hate to wait. But uh, the Lord wants us to wait, and he gives us lots of opportunities to wait on him, amen? And I know that uh, many of you are feeling like you're in one of those waiting modes, the wait mode, but uh, that's some of the sweetest fellowship that we'll ever have with the Lord, right? When we're clinging to him and trusting in him, waiting upon him, uh, reading his word, um, trusting in his word, depending on his word. And so that's why it's so important that we study his word, right? So that when we are in those waiting modes, uh, we know where to go in scripture to uh, give us hope and peace. And so let's turn back to the book of Romans as we continue our study this morning. Romans chapter 8, we began last week, and uh, this is uh, one of the most precious chapters in the book of Romans, and uh, not just the New Testament, maybe the entire Bible. And so lots of great truth here, but this morning we're just going to zero in on two verses, the next two verses, uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes this, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Father, this is a powerful passage. It's a radical passage that if we're not careful, we will misinterpret and misapply. And so we ask for your Spirit's help now, even as this chapter is all about your Spirit's help. And we know one of the ways the Spirit helps us is by illuminating our minds to understand what you meant by what you inspired Paul to write or whoever's writing at the time. And so we need your illuminating help right now. And then also we know that it's the Spirit that applies your word to our lives. And so we need the Spirit's help to do that as well. Because we don't want to be left standing here in our own strength, feeling overwhelmed, trying to do this passage um, in our own power and our own wisdom. And so help us to remember that the Spirit's not just here to help us understand this passage, um, but to do this passage and to live this passage and to obey this passage. And so we come with confidence and with great hope and excitement to see what you're going to teach us today so that we can be who you want us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've often thought and even said from time to time that if a movie was ever made which graphically portrayed the Old Testament, it would easily get an R rating. 
One of the most violent scenes in the Old Testament is the story of Saul and Samuel and the slaughtering of King Agag. Turn with me back to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15, and I'm assuming that most of you are familiar with this story, but this was uh, during the era of Saul's kingship over Israel. He was the first king of Israel, and as we know, he was... Um, not the most obedient king. Uh, they didn't get off to a great start with their first choice of who was to lead them. And uh, this is an example here um, of one of his acts of disobedience. God had commanded Saul through the prophet Samuel to annihilate the Amalekites. And this was God's way of punishing the Amalekites for attacking the Israelites when they were fleeing from Egypt. And one of the first groups of people or people groups that that set themselves against the Israelites were the Amalekites. And so God wanted to pour out his wrath upon them and punish them for the way that they had mistreated his people. And so he told Saul, take the army of the Israelites and go and destroy all the Amalekites and destroy everything. Every living thing, spare nothing, destroy it all. And if you remember, after coming back from the battle, it says that they captured King Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and uh, they wiped out everybody else, but they spared him. And they also spared the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. They were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. And so uh, Samuel shows up to kind of follow up with how things went. And Saul saw him coming and he ran to meet him and he said, oh, Samuel, I've, I've obeyed the Lord. I've done everything he told me to do. And what did Samuel say? Remember? Then what is this uh, bleeding of the sheep I hear? (laughs) What is that? I thought it was very clear. I made it very clear. God wanted you to destroy everything. Verse 18. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. 1 Samuel 15, verse 18. And Samuel said, Well, um, we just thought it would be good to bring back some stuff to, to sacrifice to the Lord. And here is the classic statement in this story, verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And Saul went on to discover that because of his disobedience, the Lord had rejected him as king. He was disqualified. And Samuel said that the Lord has raised up somebody else to take your place. And as if that wouldn't have been enough to the end of the story, look at verse 32. And Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. So here's the the leader of the Amalekites, these pagan 
wicked people. And he's coming before Samuel and he's thinking, man, I dodged a bullet on that one. I'm glad that's over. Verse 33, but Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And here it is. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. That would be a scene in a movie where you would have to turn away because of all the blood that was splattering all over the place. I share that because I think it's a shocking example of how much God hates sin who at the time was embodied there in that king of the Amalekites, the enemies of God's people. And not only how much God hates sin, but how radically and aggressively he expects us to deal with it. And so Samuel, as the prophet of God, butchered King Agag, slaughtered him, cut him into pieces. I thought an appropriate title to today's sermon would be Slaughtering Sin. Because to slaughter means to kill someone or something in a cruel or violent way. And that's essentially what Paul was advocating here in Romans chapter 8. In the same way that God wanted the Jews to exterminate the evil Amalekites, he wants us as believers to exterminate the evil thoughts and words and actions and attitudes and motives in our lives. Before coming to Christ, all of us develop sinful habits of thinking, sinful habits of talking, sinful habits of acting and responding. And Christ died so we, he could be punished for those sinful habits, but also so we could be liberated from those sinful habits. He died so he could be punished for our sinful habits and so that we could be liberated from those sinful habits. And through Christ's death, as we've been learning here, as we've been studying through the book of Romans, we've been delivered from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And the Christian life now is all about subduing or slaughtering the presence of sin that remains in our lives. But we need to realize that overcoming our propensity to sin, which we all have, in fact, in Romans 7, Paul confessed his own propensity to sin, that he always seemed to be doing what he didn't want to do and not doing what he, you know, or, or doing what he didn't want to do and he wasn't doing what he knew he should do and he had this propensity for sin in him. And, and we need to realize, however, that, that, that overcoming that propensity to sin isn't based on discovering some spiritual secret or following some special formula or seeking some mystical experience or simply letting go and letting God sanctify us, change us. At the same time, overcoming our propensity to sin isn't based on sheer determination. That kind of white knuckle, hanging on, gritting your teeth, get better, 
try harder, read more, pray more, memorize more, just do it in your own strength approach to sanctification. Here in verses 12 and 13, Paul explained our duty or responsibility in regards to indwelling sin, namely to conquer it with the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so we here we have another example uh, in the New Testament of what I like to call dependent discipline. Which is it? is it? Is it discipline? Is that how we are sanctified? Is it just dependence? No, it's both. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Work out your salvation or sanctification in fear and trembling, for it is God who has worked in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So which is it? Is it you working out your sanctification or is it God working in you? Answer, yes. And see, the Christian life really just boils down to trusting in the provision of God's Son and His sacrifice on the cross, living in obedience to the principles of God's Word, relying on the power of God's Spirit, along with personal discipline and good old-fashioned hard work. Now, that last part about good old-fashioned hard work might sound heretical, to some of you, like human work or effort is a necessary part of our salvation, but we're not talking about salvation right now. That's not what Paul was talking about here. He was talking about what? Sanctification. So we're in the section of Romans where Paul was addressing the subject of sanctification, that aspect of the overall process of salvation that comes between justification, which is by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, and glorification will be ultimately our transformed in the image of Christ, i.e. heaven. And we are living in the, the, the here and the not yet. This is the, the sanctification phase of salvation, whereby we put off sin and put on the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so there's no secret to the sanctification process. And, and yet, one of the most crucial components of our sanctification, you might think was a secret because it's really talked about, and therefore it's really practiced. It's what's called, in what, what Christians call in the olden days, mortification. Mortification. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some of you that you've never even heard that word before, Mortification. Um, and you've definitely never heard a sermon or read any book on the subject of mortification. Well, today's passage is one of two in the New Testament where Paul explained this concept of mortification or mortifying sin. Look quickly over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and I want to show you the other place where Paul mentions this concept of mortification Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now, on this rare occasion, the New American Standard, I think, doesn't do justice to the original language here. Because really, this is in the imperative tense, which you can't 
kind of you don't necessarily see uh, in the New American Standard. You see it better in the ESV and and uh, maybe the NIV even. But this is an imperative. This is a command. He's saying you need to put to death or literally mortify. If you have a King James version, it says mortify the members of your earthly body. And then he goes on to list these sins, immorality, and they're talking about impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Here he goes, another list. Anger, I'm referring to anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And so again, that language, when he says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead, is reminiscent of what Paul said back in Romans, right? Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present them to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And I think it's important just to be reminded of Paul's flow, a thought here in, in Romans, particularly Romans 6, 7, and 8. Romans chapter 6, you could say that liberation from sin is realized. And that's what he's talking about in chapter 6, that sin no longer has power over us. It no longer controls us because Christ's death defeated the power of sin. And so chapter 6, you could put the title over that, Liberation from Sin. But then chapter 7 is kind of a curveball because we see that while the power of sin has been broken, we still are dealing with the presence of sin in our lives. And Paul was honest about his ongoing struggle with sin. Even though the power of sin had been defeated, its presence in our lives remains. It still attracts us. It still seeks to influence and control us. And that is very frustrating if you're a true Christian. And so you could maybe put a simple title over chapter 7, Frustration. Okay, you've got liberation, uh, chapter 6, you've got frustration, chapter 7, and then the conclusion of Paul's thought here in regards to sanctification is chapter 8, and that is mortification. Mortification. Sinful habits are defeated by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, and the hope of overcoming sin's control is living under the Spirit's control. And so again, I said this last week that, that uh, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate avenger, okay? Had to throw that in somewhere, right? I mean, come on, it's like a, and everybody's got avenger on the brain right now. But he's the ultimate avenger. The Holy Spirit comes to the rescue. He's the ultimate superhero, and he comes to our rescue as Christians to deliver us, to rescue us from the power of sin, and so in the first 11 verses, what we looked at last week, Paul began to explain some of the blessings, some of the benefits that the Holy Spirit provides for us or produces in us. And everything we looked at last week, I mentioned at the end, is in the indicative tense or the indicative mood as opposed to the imperative tense. In other words, Paul, in the first 11 verses, was simply explaining what we need to know about the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes there's passages in Scripture where there's nothing to do, it's just something to know. 
that's, that pr- provides the foundation for what we need to do. But you can't do until you know. And so he spent some time telling us what we needed to know to get to the, the so what. When I was uh, in, in seminary, in preaching class, they taught us the one question that should always haunt you as a preacher is, so what? But there's people sitting out there every Sunday listening to you preach, and really the question they're asking in their mind is, okay, you said all this, so what? In other words, how should that affect my life? How should that change my life? How, should I be, how, how can I put that into practice today in my life, the so what? Well, this is not literally a so what. It's, it's a literally the so then. Verse 12, so then. In other words, he's transitioning here. He's drawing, uh, moving from instruction to exhortation. He's about to draw a conclusion or make an application based on what he just said in verses 1 through 11. In other words, if these things are true, that I've just got done saying, and they are true, then this is how they should impact the way you live your life as a believer. Notice what he says, so then who? Brethren. He's addressing believers or he's addressing Christians. And what does he say to Christians? He says, so then, brethren, we are under obligation. Literally, we are debtors. Every every Christian, every believer has the, the, the duty, the responsibility to live under the control and by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's his point. Notice what he says. He gives a little parenthetical statement. We're under obligation not to the flesh... To live according to the flesh. In other words, we're, we're, we're not obligated to the flesh. We, we, are, we are to refuse to give in to or to follow the inclinations and desires of our sinful flesh. And, and by the way, we can do that now. Before, we couldn't do that. We didn't have a choice Back in verses 7 and 8, it says, Because the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Before we were saved, we had no choice but to sin. But now that we're saved, we don't have to sin anymore. We are able not to sin. I mean, that's a game changer right there. That, that, that you don't have to sin. The only reason you sin, the only reason I sin, is because we choose to sin. We have a choice now whether to sin or not sin. We used to be slaves to sin, but now sin is no longer our master. We are now under obligation as Christians to live a holy and righteous life and obey our new master, Jesus Christ. And because we serve our new master, we are no longer under obligation to obey the insistent and persistent demands of our old master. Do you ever get that feeling that, that sin is insistent? Like, you got to do this. Like, almost like you don't have a choice. Very insistent. And it's not just insistent, it's persistent. It's like all the time. It doesn't let up ever. 
And so we are no longer under obligation to obey those insistent, persistent demands of our old master. Do this, say this, eat this, drink this, smoke this, touch this, take this, watch this, attend this. One of the books I read early on in my Christian life that made a dramatic impact on my thinking in regards to sin and temptation was a book by Erwin Lutzer called How to Say No to a Stubborn Habit. And um, in the book, he has an illustration about an old landlord and a new landlord. Let me read for you this illustration. This is, again, something I read years ago, 20, 30, 25, 30 years ago, and I've never forgot it. He said this, think of yourself as a tenant in an apartment house. The landlord is making your life miserable and charges exorbitant rent. He mistreats you, barges into your apartment, wrecks the furniture, and blames you for it. One day, a new owner buys the apartment complex. You now have a kind landlord who invites you to live in the apartment rent-free. You're relieved, grateful, and looking forward to a peaceful future. A few days later, there's a knock at your door. To your amazement, here is your new landlord, or excuse me, your, your old landlord, looking as mean and demanding as ever. He threatens you, reminding you that you've rented from him for many years and are obligated to obey him. What will you do? To resist him on your own is useless. He's more powerful than you are. Your best approach is to remind him that you are now under a different management and they'll have to take up your case with your new landlord. I like that. That's helpful to remember that when God saves us, it's as if he slaps a sign on us that says, under new management. I have no obligation to you any longer, old landlord. Satan in the flesh. He says, so then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Verse 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, lest we allow our security in Christ lead to complacency, which is always a danger because Romans 8 is all about our security in Christ, right? That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's nothing that can ever separate us from the love of Christ. The Holy Spirit, as we're going to learn here next week or in a couple weeks, that he gives us assurance of our salvation. So this chapter is all about assurance of salvation, our security in Christ, but sometimes we can get complacent in that. And granted, while God has done everything for our justification, we participate in our sanctification. And instead of living according to the flesh, like we used to, Paul says we should be putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That little phrase there, putting to death, literally means to kill or destroy. It's where we get the word mortify or mortification. And while you may not have heard that word before, mortification, you've heard of the word mortuary, which is a place where dead bodies are kept, or a mortician, 
The mortician is the guy that handles the dead bodies. So a simple definition of mortification is killing sin in your life. That's what it means. And really, this is the practical side of what Paul introduced in Romans chapter 6 when he said, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So it's this considering or reckoning of ourselves dead to sin put into practice in our daily lives. What what does that look like? Not to present my hands or my ears or my eyes or or my mouth or my mind or my feet, right, to to sin. What does that look like practically? Well, he says you need to put those things to death. Put to death the deeds of the body. This command is in the present tense, which means it, this is a continual, ongoing, daily, moment-by-moment battle. This is not just a one-time deal. Like, well, I put that to death, I can move on now. No, this is a constant war that goes on in our hearts as Christians. We are to be radically and ruthlessly exterminating, eliminating, eradicating, executing everything that keeps us from being holy. And don't miss this. We need to understand, and this is crucial, that mortification is a life and death issue. Notice he says, for if you're living according to the flesh, you must what? Die. But if by the Spirit you're putting death to the body, you will what? Live. So this is a life and death issue. What is Paul implying here? This is, we need to be careful here, but let's, let's go down this road, okay? I think Paul clearly implied here that our eternal destiny depends on whether or not we mortify sin in our life. That pause is just to make you uncomfortable with that. Because I know some of you are feeling uncomfortable. It even sounded uncomfortable coming out of my mouth, Okay? Let's unpack that a little bit. And by the way, Paul's not off the rails here. He's following in step with Jesus Christ. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. Here in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus says something shocking, something very graphic something very unexpected even, Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. By the way, that was in the context of Jesus just saying, verse 27, you've heard that it said, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who, what? looks at a woman with lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble. So he's addressing a, a sin issue with your eyes. If you're sitting with your eyes, tear your eye out and throw it away. 
Because it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now that'd be enough if Jesus said it once, but he said it a second time. Look at Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9. Matthew 18, verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life, by the way, which means heaven, Better for you to enter heaven with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. I remember hearing John Piper preach on that text or these texts and basically said, if you um, continue in habitual sin, that means you're going to hell. He was talking to a bunch of young people at a high school. And he says, if you are living out of control in regards to your lust, if you cannot get control over your lust, you will go to hell. Kind of a shocking statement, right? A bunch of young people thinking, well, that's kind of what I'm struggling with. And it seems like it's, it's, it's controlling me. Well, listen, if, if it's controlling you, then you will go to hell. You must control that is the point that he's making. Now again, this passage, this, these two texts in Matthew have been misinterpreted and misapplied throughout church history. Origen, one of the church fathers, read those verses and applied them by castrating himself, literally cutting off a part of his body. I think we know that that's not what Jesus was referring to here. This is figurative language. It's not literal Language, but it is radical nonetheless. In fact, I've heard this referred to as radical amputation, where you get aggressive and radical with your sin. And, and uh, you do whatever it takes to stop sinning in a certain area. And if that means uh, taking drastic measures, not literally gouging out an eye. I don't want to see anybody walking in or next week with a patch over their eye, you know, or coming in with a crutch because you cut off your leg or something. But you know what? Oftentimes, war veterans are wounded. And they live wounded. And oftentimes you'll see a, a man who served in the military, a woman served in the military, and they have a patch over their eye. Or they have a prosthetic limb because they lost a, a limb in, in, in battle. And in some ways, we as Christians, we can demonstrate that we are loyal soldiers to Jesus Christ by living like blind amputees, spiritually speaking. Why? Because we've taken radical steps to mortify sin.
Whenever I read those verses in Matthew, I'm reminded of a story I read years ago in the Houston Chronicle about a guy named Aaron Ralston. He was an avid outdoorsman and he was hiking and rock climbing in Utah's Canyonlands National Park. And some of you may remember this story. It was made into a movie, 127 Hours. And uh, he was uh, climbing through the slot canyon and this boulder that he was climbing on gave way and, and it pinned him down in this, in this, this little canyon and uh, it, it crushed his right hand and pinned him in that canyon, against that canyon wall and he couldn't get out. And he tried to get that rock to move and of course it was an 800 pounder plus rock and he began to trip, chip away at it and, and uh, he eventually realized the only way he could escape with his life was to cut off his arm. And so he took out his pocket knife and started sawing back and forth with his little two-inch pocket knife. That didn't work. And so he realized he had to actually break his arm so that he could actually cut through all that he needed to cut through to amputate his arm. Well, he eventually did. He freed himself. He cut off his arm, freed himself, um, had to then get back to his car, which was like some six miles, eight miles away. Uh, with his cell phone, and somehow he managed to get out of that canyon. He rappelled down 65-foot uh, sheer face with one arm, hiked six miles before he came across some other hikers who called in the emergency and alerted the authorities. He was quickly airlifted to the hospital. Again, a, an amazing story, um, enough to be made in a movie. I personally like the simple title of the Houston Chronicle, and I saved the article, and the title is Loss of Limb... Priced climber paid to live. Loss of limb, price climber paid to live. What a, what a vivid example of how a person who has a passion to live will do anything it takes not to die. Even if it means doing something as radical as cutting off your own arm. And applied to our text here, Paul says... We will die if we don't put sin to death in our lives. And so we need to be willing to do whatever it takes to remove from our lives that which will cause our death. Now let me circle back around here to make sure that we don't misinterpret, misapply, misunderstand what Paul was saying here. Paul was not saying that a Christian who sins could lose their salvation. We know he's talking to believers here, right? He's addressing believers. He's not saying that a Christian who sins or continues in some sin could lose their salvation. This is what he was saying. Notice, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. That's the key word. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. In other words, if you are living in a continual pattern of sinfulness, that you have sinful habits in your thoughts, in your words, in your actions that you don't care about or that you're not doing anything about, you will die in your sin. In other words, you were never a Christian to begin with. You're not truly saved. 
I think what John said in 1 John chapter 3 is very helpful at this point. Look at 1 John chapter 3, especially those of you that are still kind of scratching your head going up. I'm not sure I'm following track in here. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. This is a very helpful text. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. In other words, I don't want you to be deceived. And we're going to find out uh, what is the deception, whether or, not, whether or not you're truly saved. That's the whole point of 1 John. He, he was writing these things that they might know that they have eternal life. I don't want you to be deceived into thinking you're saved when you're really not. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. In other words, this is how you know. Who's a Christian and who's not a Christian? Who's a child of God and who's a child of the devil? It's obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. What's the word that's used more than any other word in those verses? The word practice. What does it mean to practice something? To do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again until you get really good at it. Some of you are thinking, well, I got some things that I seem like I do over and over and over and over again. Well, you may be still committing some of those same sins that you committed before you were saved, but I would suggest to you that if you are truly saved, you see a decreasing frequency of how often you do that. That, In other words, that sin is tapering off slowly but surely in your life. There's, There's some level of improvement. Why? Because that's what the Spirit of God does when he enters a person's life. As he begins to go after the sins of the, the rebel parts of our soul that raise themselves up against the Lord. And I think one of the greatest assurances that we are truly saved is not that we stop sinning altogether. That's never going to happen while we're on this earth. But that we see a decreasing frequency of sin in our lives. We're not perfect and we never will be this side of heaven. But we resolve to kill sin rather than allowing it to remain a pattern in our life. And according to the Apostle John here, it's impossible for a believer to continue in an ongoing, habitual lifestyle of sinfulness. That's what we're talking about here, right? Back in Romans, if you are living according to the flesh. On the other hand, if you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh... In other words, your life is characterized, listen to this, I think this is important, that that your life is characterized by a sincere desire and earnest effort to overcome sinful habit patterns, then you'll live. That's evidence that you're going to heaven. That's evidence that you're a Christian. Why? 
because it's not that mortifying sin saves you, but mortifying sin proves that you're saved. Your desire, your effort to overcome sin in your life is evidence that the Spirit of God is alive and well in your soul. And so we need to ask ourselves the question this morning, do we have a passion to be holy and not sin? Do you have a passion to be holy and not to sin? Are we exerting intense effort to overcome sin in our lives? Are you exerting intense effort to overcome that stubborn sin, that stubborn habit in your life? And do we see a decreasing frequency of sin in our lives? Do you see a decreasing frequency of sin in your life? Now, let me just say this. For those of you with a particularly um, sensitive conscience, and I don't think it's just for those who have a sensitive conscience, but, but any mature believer, as they get closer and closer to the Lord, and, 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 and have a deeper walk with the Lord. This is the irony of sanctification, that while you are sinning less and less, it feels like, it seems like, you're sinning more and more. Because the closer you get to Christ, the more you realize how sinful you really are. And when you first come to Christ, it's like we're back here and the spotlight is way off there and we can see some of our sin, right? But as we move closer, as we walk with the Lord, we get closer and closer and closer to the spotlight and you begin to look at yourself and go, whoa, I didn't realize how messed up I really am. And so keep that in mind, right? That while you're sitting here this morning and you have been walking with the Lord forever and you're starting to feel convicted, like, oh, maybe I'm not saved. Is Ken trying to get me to doubt my salvation? Because I feel more sinful today than I did when I first got saved. Well, that's a good sign that you've gotten closer to Christ. And you're far more sensitive to your sin now than you were when you were a young believer. The point is this, if you have no desire, you're putting forth no effort, or you see no progress in mortifying sin in your life, it may mean that you aren't a Christian. A person that's not a Christian doesn't have the Holy Spirit in them, and therefore they have no desire, no ability to mortify sin. So this verse is a good verse to, to challenge us, I think, to examine ourselves to make sure that we're truly in the faith. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself, test yourself to see if you're truly in the faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his massive commentary on the book of Romans, said this about Verses 12 and 13. Quote, here we are told exactly how in practice the Christian becomes sanctified. Or to state it differently, he says, here we are told in detail and in practice how the Christian is to wage battle against sin. Here it is. If you're looking for a secret, the holy grail, right, of sanctification, here it is. 
according to Martin Lloyd-Jones. J.I. Packer, another formidable Bible scholar, said this, to mortify means to kill, and the end aimed at it in this duty is destruction. As it is in all killing, the utter ruin, destruction, and gradual annihilation of all the remainders of this cursed life of sin. Indwelling sin has been dethroned and dealt its death blow through the believer's union with Christ in his death. Now, with the Spirit's aid, the Christian must spend his lifetime draining its lifeblood. Very graphic imagery there. And then very practically down to earth, John MacArthur says this, the flesh is very subtle and deceptive. Amen? A particular sin may leave us alone for a while to make us think we're rid of it, but it can come back with a hellish fury if we're not on our guard. How many of you can say that you know what that's like? Something that you thought after years of, of battling that, that, that man, I, I feel like I finally gained the victory over this particular sin, and then, boom, out of nowhere, it comes raging back, and you fall off the wagon. That's the Christian life. MacArthur goes on to say, sin perpetually stalks us. Graphic language there. We must be continually mortifying it. This is a duty we cannot rest from until we rest in glory. So to sum up here, what we've been thinking about, talking about, Mortification. Mortification does not mean completely eliminating sin from our lives. That's a human impossibility, this side of heaven. But what mortification is, is constantly fighting against sin and ultimately weakening it in our lives. We need to see sin as our sworn enemy that will do whatever it takes to kill us. And so we need to be willing to do whatever it takes to kill sin before it kills us. Kill or be killed is how it goes when it comes to sin. The question is, how do we actually do that? What is the way, practically, that we kill and mortify sin? Well, I want to give you a a list of 12 ways to mortify sin in your life. This is not an all-inclusive list, but it covers some of the most basic principles for mortifying sin. And just for those of you that looked at your watch and said, we're goners, okay? (laughs) We are going to be here for the next three hours and uh, put the burritos on hold, Kyle, right? Um, No. What I want to do is I want to save this for next week. But in the meantime, what I want you to do is, is uh, this week, I want you to focus on number one. Okay? Number one. When if you have your notes there um, that I provided, number one is simply this. Well, what's the first step in mortifying a sin in your life? Well, you've got to identify specific sins in your life. And there's some verses there. First um, Kings chapter eight, for example. Maybe just listen to 
what it says. Fascinating little verse here, 1 Kings 8, 37. If there is famine, this is, by the way, the prayer of dedication. Solomon was praying to God as he was dedicating the temple. But this is what he says. If there is a famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all people, all your people, Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands towards this house, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. So again, in this general, hey, if there's all these bad things happen and you are pouring out your discipline upon us through famine, through pestilence, through locusts, through mildew, through grasshoppers, if an enemy besieges us, which was all, by the way, judgment, Promise judgment for their sin and their rebellion. Um, this will happen if you do these things, God said. If we pray, that you would restore us. But notice he says, each man knowing the affliction of his own heart. I think that's a reminder that each one of us needs to know the affliction of our own heart. What is it that your heart struggles with? What is the the sins that you battle with. You need to know your own heart. Now we know Jeremiah says our heart's deceitfully wicked. Who can know it, right? But God does. He says you alone know the hearts of the sons of men. And that's why we need to pray what the psalmist prayed. David prayed Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful or wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. And so if we're to, to know the affliction of our own hearts, we need to ask the Lord who knows our hearts better than anyone to help us see the sins, the, 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 the struggles that we have. And, and, and that comes when we consider our ways. That's what it says in Haggai chapter 1. Verses 5 and 7, the prophet simply said to the people of Israel, he said, hey, consider your ways. In other words, evaluate your life. And so what I want to encourage you to do this week is to kind of begin this process of mortifying sin in your life by identifying specific sins that you need to kill, specific habit patterns, those things that you find yourself doing over and over again that are by now easier to do than not do. In other words, you're just, they're just natural. They're automatic. It may be anger. It may be pride, anxiety, materialism, sexual morality, jealousy, gluttony. Any life-dominating sin is falls into this category. Any addictions, pornography, drugs, alcohol, nicotine, caffeine, sugar. Yeah, I'll throw that one in there too. And this is uh, what, what, what we could call, Kyle was the one that introduced me to this little phrase, a personal sanctification project. That's what this is all about. A little PSP, a personal sanctification project. This is, this is our homework, all of us. This is our homework this week. Uh, is to do this little sanctification project and, and, and maybe what you could do, just a suggestion, come back next week with a list. 
whether it's on, actually written down, that would be best, but maybe it's just a mental list of your top three to five sins that you want to apply these principles of mortification, 2 through 12. And, and so you'll come ready with a, with a, with a sin having been is, identified and isolated. And I'm going to take this habit pattern, and by the grace of God, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to kill this sucker. Okay? So figure out that, what that sin's going to be that you're going to attack this week. Don't wait till next week to attack. Don't say, well, I'll just get... I'm going to get my fill of sin this week because then Sunday I'm going to quit. Don't, don't do that, okay? Start now. You can start applying these principles today, right? But we'll get, we'll get focused and we'll get serious next Sunday as we apply these principles to that sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how practical it is in our lives. Um, I pray that you would help all of us take this passage, this message seriously. And, and zero in on those sins in our lives that we know are not pleasing to you, those sins that just seem to keep rearing their ugly head in our lives, even when we least expect it. So help us to, to get serious and help us to get radical, help us to get ruthless, very intentional, very deliberate in um, identifying and isolating sin in our life so that we can apply your word to it in the power of your spirit. Pray that we'd all see some tremendous growth uh, during this process for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.